0: Good evening let's do a sound check if I talk like this is this okay okay in the back a little bit more tad up how about that how's this now can you hear me in the back better okay thank you so tonight um we're wanting to introduce the satipatthana Practice, the practice of mindfulness and the four foundations of this mindfulness, and talk a little about this, which we will then expand upon over the next number of days. Sati, mindfulness. The English language makes verb makes a nouns out of everything, and I like verbs. And the Pali language is more a verb language than a noun language so I'm going to call it being mindful or practicing being mindful rather than as though it's a thing which has qualities it's a way of being alive and perceiving and uh, you all know it so I won't describe it at length but a little bit Knowing what's happening, or knowing what's what. It's this knowing what's happening while it's happening, being present for what's happening, being conscious of your experience while you're having it. Very subtle difference, but all the difference in the whole world. Knowing what's happening, period. Not knowing and liking, or knowing and judging or knowing and commenting, or knowing and whining, just knowing. But it isn't just cool, detached gathering of information and checking it off. Oh yeah, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. There's a quality of um, respect in it. There's a quality of uh, receiving what's happening in a in a sacred way. So there's a an heart aspect to this. It's like we actually care about what's happening. We don't just go, oh yeah, I know what's happening. It's a sort of an honoring of what's happening. Definitely an allowing it to be as it is, whatever it is. So we know in a big way. And as we grow in this, as this grows in us, as this faculty becomes developed in us it's a deepening so we don't just know something that's happening we really can deeply sense all about it because we really connecting so it's it's a doorway into increasing connection with all of life our own inner bits and pieces and all the things that happen it's a way into being deeply with and therefore understanding And therefore being guided by how then, next, to take a step, how to respond. A sensing, a being with, a meeting, connecting, it's rich and enriching experience compared to when we have no mindfulness, we, you know, we we're very shallow and what we meet it's very instantaneous, we glance off to something, or else we confuse it with a whole lot of extra there's no period it's that we see and then we get entangled or we dismiss or we put a whole spin on and we confuse everything. It's a very untroubling activity. And because it's an untroubling activity and because we When we're being aware in this way and respectful, we're not causing trouble. We are not reacting. We are undisturbed. Mindfulness, being mindful, is being undisturbed by these things. Not just we leave them as they are, but ourselves, we don't get upset and then have to do something with it. Sati doesn't change the experience, it deepens it. And um, it's another one of the the modest middle ways of the Buddha. When there's not mindfulness either, typically we do one of two extremes, we either miss or deny or oppress or suppress something. We don't allow it and respect it and hold it, or it comes up and we don't suppress it, but it comes up so much that we then get all reactivated by it, triggered by it, involved, entangled by it. This is neither of those. No suppression, denial, avoidance, no reactivity and entanglement, the middle. And as I said, I think already, it's a big way of knowing. And so the mind that has this capacity of being really with and seeing really clearly, sees really broadly, deeply, broadly, widely, with all the kind of bit attendant players and, and conditions. So it's a wise kind of seeing. very important in the teachings of the Buddha, specifically listed in three key lists. The Eightfold Path, Right Mindfulness, as a a central balancing factor in the Indriya, in the five spiritual faculties, which when they develop and grow in us become powerful the powers. It's the central one of these five and it's it functions as a way of keeping the other, keeping the two pairs of of faith and wisdom and energy and concentration balancing and functioning together effectively, not getting too extremely out of whack. It's also the initiating factor in the um, awakening factors. It gets that whole Beautiful, I wonder if we'll get round, somebody may talk about that during this retreat, that beautiful set of seven awakening factors that we all live with, understand, exhibit, have the capacity for, but which grow the more we practice. It's It's the initial one of these, the first one of these seven. Hugely important. So I want to talk about it in terms of the four foundations of itself, the four ways the Buddha taught us to be aware with this mindfulness, how to practice this being mindful with our experience. He said, let's pay attention to these four areas of your experience and know these. Tune into these in a knowing way, in a respectful, sacred way, in a caring, understanding, deep way. And if you do, consistently, little tiny word, consistently, (laughs) you have to do it consistently or... In one year, you will become completely awakened. Even in nine months, even in six months, three months, one month, one week. It's got to be consistently. (laughs) I think you're allowed to sleep, maybe. It's so amazing. So what are these four foundations? Foundations. Even that word is so strong and so reliable, such a trustworthy word. These four areas you know. The first one is the area of our experience which is the physical form, the somatic experience. All aspects of being embodied, the body and its various behaviors and tensions and aches and pains and activities and adjustments and all of it. Twitches and everything. The second area, this fascinating area, the feeling tone of your experience, meaning whether you're Experience in this moment is one that's pleasant to you, that's unpleasant to you, sometimes extremely pleasant, sometimes slightly okay, sometimes mildly irritating, sometimes extremely upsetting, or neither of those things, in between those things. Something that's not particularly pleasant to you, it's not particularly unpleasant to you, anywhere in between where those I- extremes occur. The third area to to be exploring getting to know in this big way is um, the state of your mind. The state of your mind. The state and how that mind is behaving really. And the fourth area is what that mind is actually producing. I like the word children of the mind or offspring. Because the mind keeps producing its offspring, incredibly prolifically. The way the salivary glands secrete saliva, somebody once said, or Jack once said, like a spaghetti factory (coughs) pumps out spaghetti. (laughs) He did it like this. So it sort of pumps out contents, the contents of the mind, the products of the mind. The children of the mind. So, for most people, and us a lot of the time, we aren't particularly aware of area number one, the body. We usually take it for granted, ride it around like an old pony, suddenly find ourselves somewhere we don't know how we got there, we notice it when it squeaks at us or complains or something doesn't work. But the rest of the time, it's really, for many people, not particularly obvious. Some people, extremely so. Some people are very unable, even when trying, to feel their hands or their feet or what their shoulders are doing, but some people more easily. But still, for most of us, we're not usually interested. It's unusual to be a tasia or somebody who's you know really really applied this mindfulness to this part of our experience. The second area whether things are pleasant unpleasant or not particularly either is also not usually noticed in our lives. The things we find that are pleasant we find ourselves liking them all right and getting involved with them but we didn't notice that they were pleasant we just know that we want them. And the similar things with the unpleasant we don't actually realize they're unpleasant, we just know that we're triggered by the, into some kind of negative response. But we haven't noticed what it is about them that's doing the triggering. We don't usually notice this area and particularly the neutral, we absolutely don't notice that area because it's not triggering any response so why would we bother? <coughs> the third of these whole areas of our experience, the state of our mind. We don't usually know the state of our mind. We don't usually know we're excited or we're happy or irritated. We simply know that things are irritating us and there's a problem and that's their problem and they shouldn't do that. But we don't actually take responsibility for the fact that it's my mind perceiving this in that way. We don't know that our, how our minds are. Most of the time, most people, and the children of these minds of ours that we aren't noticing, we notice these children all the time. Our main preoccupation all day long is what we're thinking. That constant commentary, on and on and on and da da da, this is happening and this is happening, and like da 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 It's sometimes, you know, grouchy and sometimes critical and sometimes happy and it's all it's different kinds of character to it but our main activity our main interest where we're mostly spending our attention is in this in the area of the children of our minds and we don't just spend undue time and energy there we're completely in it We completely believe it, it's reality for us, it's absolutely meaningful, it's completely significant. It's telling the story of who I am and it's absolutely right, we think. This is the average human. And then along comes somebody like the Buddha. And he teaches us the complete opposite way of living. Extraordinary, utterly radical. And he says, instead, pay attention to your body. Respectfully, fully, thoroughly, knowingly, clearly, purely. The body is amazing. A couple of little examples. Well, three. The body is really true. The body really doesn't lie. The body knows really what's going on, even if your mind doesn't. You know, you jump and shy away from something, even if you don't know why, because your body is watching out for something because it's been triggered from some memory it's learned. That's deeply so, as we know, for people who've been traumatized, their bodies will remember for a long time. Lie detectors work because the body knows the truth even if the person's lying and it's measurable, the body is measurable. There was a little piece of research, a doctor who was, um, this is in the earlier days of wiring people up and reading their brain waves and things. They um, wired up two different groups of people and measured their brain waves. Um, And one group they asked, they asked them to look at the same cartoon both groups, a funny picture, funny cartoon. One group had to look at the picture while holding a pen in their teeth. And one had to look at the same picture holding the pen in their mouth with their lips, like this. And they wired them up and they just showed them this picture. And they discovered that the people with the pen in their teeth who were already smiling found it very funny and the people who had the pen in their lips and therefore couldn't smile didn't find it anything like so funny (laughs) because the features of the face the expression, the muscles of the face affected the brain so that the brain responded there was a different state of mind going on just because of the shape of the lips the mouth for instance and then there's a more recent study that some of you will have heard about. Amy Cuddy, the, the uh, psychiatrist, social psychiatrist. Uh, she's done a TED talk that went quite popular fairly recently, talking about power poses. I don't know if any of you have heard of this. She, a similar thing, measuring the brain <coughs> in different postures. <coughs> if the body is held in a power pose a pose of confidence of bigness i just was looking it up recently and there's um, usain bolt after he's won the 100 meter and he does this you know, it like a super power pose or standing with your hands on your hips that kind of thing standing big legs you know widened compared to a unempowered pose of curling up or holding <coughs> sorry holding your head collapsing worrying you know how we worry anything like that if you take the power pose for two minutes you have an elevated testosterone and a lowered cortisol and if you have elevated testosterone you have confidence and energy and strength power and if you have a lowered cortisol you have the ability to handle stress and and clear thinking and the reverse happens in the reverse pose two minutes measurable this is the body. This is the miracle of the body. We don't even pay attention to the body. But we, as we age, you can see patterns of behavior in bodies. You can see in expressions. We have an amazing capacity to read body language. I hope we don't lose this capacity by texting instead of talking. The body is rich with information about what's really going on for you. And if we spend some energy tuning into deeply what's going on in the body, it can really help us know the truth of what's happening for ourselves. We can learn so much that we are missing because we just take it so for granted. second arena, area to pay attention that the Buddha recommends. Vedana, the pleasantness, the unpleasant quality or the neither pleasant nor unpleasant quality of our experiences. We've heard this teaching, I'm sure you've all heard it many times and familiar with it. If the point of this is so simple, if we can know that something's pleasant when it's pleasant it's like a it's like a gatekeeper it's like a god if we can know that it can catch us before we get triggered into wanting it it happens so fast we need to be really present but if we can explore this area this is just an amazing area for meditating and recognize the quality of the experience that we're perceiving. Not everyone perceives it that way, so it isn't like it's inherent in the the object, it's just part of our relationship. But if our relationship is that it's a pleasant thing, we're about to want it if we aren't mindful. But if we're mindful, we can know it's pleasant, we can appreciate it, we can enjoy it, we can love it, we can even have it. But we don't have to have it. We don't get caught in this automatic reactive greed pattern, this grab, this urge, this impulse. If we don't, the thing is pleasant, whatever the thing may be, inner or outer, and the urge comes over so quickly that really, when you look at that, the pleasantness of that experience is actually running you into wanting, or scheming, or planning, or whatever it is you're doing with it, craving it. It just gets us to the fringe. We didn't even mean to, because we weren't aware of our body either. Or whatever, it gets us into trouble. If it's unpleasant, and we don't know it's unpleasant, we're already irritated, we're already lost. The problem, because we perceive it as problem, is in fact, Triggering us rather than we're choosing how to behave. We're out of control if we don't notice these two things. But if we can tell knowingly this is really unpleasant. We have a really really good chance of choosing whether to get upset about it and get into a tangle with it or not. We now have a little more power over the situation. Without any mindfulness, we don't even notice it. We're going to be upset. We're going to be ecstatic. We're going to be attached to whatever that is. And immediately we'll be thinking thoughts of scheming or angry or critical or scared thoughts, and they'll be our reality. And that will be our life, triggered by something that was pleasant or something that was unpleasant that we didn't realize. We get caught. The whole arena between the pleasant or the unpleasant Sometimes we call it neutral, but it's not that it's neutral. It's that it's not triggering us. It's not particularly pleasant. It's not particularly unpleasant. We usually have—we don't even notice it. We don't even notice our own body, so we certainly don't notice any experience that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Why would we bother? We only bother with the things that make us feel great or bother us so that we feel we have to fix so that we think we'll feel better. That's all we're bothered with. The rest doesn't matter. So we miss it, so these three are our three root troubles, greed, hatred, and delusion. That's how they show up, as a response to these particular ways of relating. Right there, our three problems, greed, hatred, and delusion can be mastered if we can be mindful of those particular qualities of our experience, simple, brilliant. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the neutral a little bit later. I'm going to come back to that. Area number three, the state of our minds, that we don't really realize the state of our minds. The state of our mind is the parent that produces the children. And we're preoccupied with the children, but we don't realize what kind of parents produced it. And if we can realize, oh, this mind is worried, then all the children that are coming out of that worried mind will be worries. Would they? <laughs> but if we can see, oh, worryings, then the children aren't so convincing. The children aren't so real. They're, of course, salivary glands produce saliva. Worried minds produce worries. Loving minds produce loving thoughts and feelings. But when we don't notice the state of the mind, the state of the parent, doing the production, we, we're, again, we're already caught in believing the story of those children. They have us. They run us, these thoughts. So notice how is your mind. Pay attention to how you are relating. How is this mind? It's the most amazing thing to get to know this mind. Is it happy? Is it bored? Is it struggling? Is it shrinking? Is it calm? Is it serene? Is it spacious? Is it jumping all over the place? What's going on with the mind? Not in the mind, but how is the mind itself? Because that, this mind, The way the mind is feeling, the way the mind is behaving, the state your mind is in, is where your whole life happens. This is where your happiness happens. This is where your unhappiness happens. This is where being caught happens. This is where freedom happens, all in the state of the mind. And we don't even know that it's happening. We're just busy with the children. We have no clue, mostly. So the Buddha says, put your awareness into how your mind is. How How is it? Don't put your mind so much into the products because they're of course going to come out of that kind of a mind. Go back to the parentage of the mind and address that. We're most identified with this part of... We think this is me. How I'm thinking and the stories I'm telling and the children that I'm producing, this is me. We're the most caught up. We, we have very little space to go, oh, this is a mind and it's in this state producing these kinds of thoughts. We so rarely can do that. We're completely convinced by it. We have given it all the power And so it runs us completely. It's what creates the quality of your life. The quality of your thoughts, the quality of your feelings, the quality then of your words and your actions and your relationships and your whole life. This is where understanding happens. This is where letting go happens. This is where relaxing happens. This is where caring happens. And it isn't the part of the mind that's the information gathering part of the mind. It's the heart mind, chitta. The mind that receives impulses, senses, and holds them. Relates. Connects. Our moods. It's where our intentions are born, as well as our reactions. All of these will be spoken about more in detail, so I'm just introducing the topics here. The fourth area, it's called the dharmas the children of the mind, the products of the mind, the cognitive aspect of the mind, the thinking mind. When there's no training, it's just relentlessly pouring out all these constant commentary, narrative. The ones which you pay attention to, which are loud in there, most of those are all about me. The ones that are about the weather and the floor and the Even the turkeys are very transient little ones. But the ones that are the insistent ones which preoccupy us and completely preoccupy us are all about me and my life. It's the story of my life and the plot of my life and the plans of my life and the the dramas. I'm the central player of the drama and that's that's like with a we could make Fantastic money if somebody would pay us for this amazing, ongoing drama, serial drama, never ends. When we meditate here, watching the products of our minds, these children, these thoughts, it just changes us completely. All of these change us completely, as I've said, but What happens is, instead of it being about me, we realize a thought is a thought. A worry is a worry. You've heard all these teachings. But it's extraordinary, the difference. A plan is a plan. Comes usually from worrying or insecurity. A memory is a memory. Thoughts are just little bubbles, little blips, little ideas pictures. Light, light, light. Really. Except that when you're in there, and when you're completely invested in them and believe them utterly, which of course is what we do, then they're like, they can be so heavy, they can make people do unbelievable things. They're not just little wispy bubbles, they're the power to run us into the utter distress. That's the worst things that's possible that, that comes from that, the state of the mind producing the thoughts that we then believe in are complete enemies. Confusions, misunderstandings, everything. When we can see clearly these thoughts without believing in them and without them being all about me, seeing what's really happening saliva being produced by salivary glands, children being produced by states of mind, when we can see this and we can start watching them simply as energy, simply as thoughts, bubbles, ideas, opinions, I see I have this opinion, I have this repeated opinion, it's just an opinion. Oh my God, I thought it was how they really were, but it's just my story. It's the most liberating thing. You've all known this. You know when you actually have, the first time, when you're a serious meditator and you really get, it's just a thought, it's not actually real. And I believed it was real. They're not real, they're just these ideas. Oh my God, isn't that the most liberating thing when we first discover this? When we see thoughts as they really are, we see they're either the kind of thoughts that lead us away from ease and well-being and clarity and truth. They trigger us into getting caught and believing in them. Those are called hindrances. Or they're not. They're the kind of thoughts which actually are liberating thoughts like kindness type thoughts, meta thoughts, for instance, or uh, gratitude thoughts. Or the kind of thinking that is about serenity and calm, joy, factors of awakening. The, the contents, the, the products coming out of the mind are leading us into the wholesome, as it's called in Buddhism, freedom, clarity, or to more entanglement, more belief in, I need that, and i got to get rid of that. If thoughts, images, ideas, opinions, stories, commentary are seen for what they really are, they're the truth of things, they're the dharma. We can see them in terms of the noble truths, for instance. We can see, here's a thought, a thinking, an attitude, a bit of story running, a thought train, whatever you want to call it, an activity of mind, which really wants something to be different, which is causing stress. First and second noble truth, right there, recognized. Seeing that, understanding that, that feeling I need to get to tell that person to not breathe so heavily behind me, realizing I don't need to, it doesn't make any difference. Suddenly there's no more stress. Third noble truth, in a moment. We can see our mental behavior in terms of what they really are. Those are called the dharmas, and you'll also be hearing more about these. I wanted to go back to the neutral, to the neither pleasant nor unpleasant arena of whether, you know, the Vedna of our experience. (coughs) This is huge. If you can, pay attention, where you never did before, because why bother? Because it's not going to trigger you in a positive or a negative reaction. If you stay and pay attention, which of course we do when we're meditators and we're on retreat, especially when it's quiet, and there's not a lot of stimulus going around that we adore and that drives us crazy, there's so a lot of what we otherwise would never notice. We start noticing raindrops and frogs singing and all little tiny things, cracks in the pavement. and start noticing what otherwise was neutral to you, dismissed. We have, all day long, this happens all day long, we dismissed it, but all day long, thousands of times, moments when we don't need to be triggered into greed or hatred. Moments when we can be present, aware, open, connected, and not caught. That's called freedom. And they're happening all day long. And we're missing it. It's the biggest tragedy. We're spending all of our time caught with these children, which are the ones busily wanting and busily trying to get rid of, missing all those neutral moments in between because we thought they weren't significant. Because we think significance is wanting this and getting rid of that, that's where we are triggered. And so the other we have discounted. In fact, it's the opposite. Those are the moments If we didn't have them, we would die of stress before we got to the age of 10. Our whole nervous systems would just burn out. But we don't appreciate them. If you, if we can live increasingly aware, mindfully in these moments of non-reactivity, of not chasing, of not flinching, of not getting entangled and all caught up, we can learn, to abide in ease, in simplicity, in peace, in all the things that we all want. And we can do it all the time. Furthermore, when we do, when we begin to appreciate these moments, sometimes they're more than moments, they're minutes, when we can be consciously abiding, mindful of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we can really see clearly when it ends, and then a moment of wanting happens. And we cannot just see, but we can feel dukkha. As it shows up, we can go, oh, because now I've got to have something. I was all peaceful, and then something lovely happened, and now I want it. Or something unpleasant happened, and now I'm irritated, but I just wasn't. It's the reference. It's hard to see our reactivity, because when it's all there is, and it's all we're conscious of, we can't, it's like the fish can't tell it's in the sea. But when you're actually quiet and calm, you know you're getting quiet and calm. That's when you actually can recognize more and more readily and more and more easily the movement of mind to grab onto something and get wanting it or get worried about it. Not just the movement of mind, movement of heart, movement of energy. Off we go, busy spinning our wheels, trying to figure it out or something. dukkha But there are all these moments all day long that's not happening. Don't miss them. Appreciate them. Deeply, mindfully, fully. Stay there. That's why I was saying abide in it. Not just see it or think about it. Sense your body at ease. Sense your mind relaxed. Sense your mind opening, tender, peaceful, untriggered. These are hugely important. And they're the gift we have all day long of freedom, which the thing we think we're seeking that's somewhere far away when we've learned all these other things, it's way, way more simple than that. Too simple, too close. We look, we try hard, we're looking elsewhere all the time, being such good yogis, such good people, trying so hard to be better. We miss these opportunities. In the Satipatthana Sutta, there are these four areas, but there's also a refrain with each area, as the sutta is... I, I haven't brought the sutta to read to you. I probably should have, but I haven't got it with me. Um, there's, each time each of these areas is introduced, we're asked to be mindful, to practice mindfulness of each area, but with th- in three particular ways. Well, and more than three, actually, but anyway, mainly three. We're asked to be aware of, let's say, the body internally, and the body externally, and the body both internally and externally. Your own body, how it feels on the inside, other bodies, and how they are appearing to you outside yourself. And both, sometimes yours, sometimes another. There's different ways of interpreting this, and we'll see where where some of the other teachers may take this depending on their talks, but this is so that it's not just your own inner experience we learn through being more embodied ourselves, more tuned in more able to read our own body language our own expressions, our own patterns to be able to recognize them in each other this is what empathy is this is what relationship is, this is actually being able to not just read the words in a text but actually sense each other because we understand our own, and so of course we understand it in another. We know when people frown or fidget or shrink or relax. We can see it, read it, sense it, know it, because we know internally and externally in oneself and in other people. And this this is what takes us beyond the uh, experiment of self-exploration and expands us to be humans in community and it's what is the beginning of Sangha. Sangha, the 100% of the holy life. The second um, part of the refrain is uh, noticing your body, for instance, but the same with all four of these areas, um, and the sensation that you may notice in the body as it arises. And then notice whatever you're noticing about your body as it subsides or disappears. And then noticing both. Noticing things arising in your body and disappearing again. Arising and disappearing. Disappearing. This is an enormous teaching the Buddha taught. This is about being able to see that things are not solid. Our little minds, when they're in a situation, that's reality and that's solid. It feels solid and it feels permanent. The mind does that in the way it perceives. Nothing is solid and nothing is permanent. Nothing. And we can actually see this impermanence of our experience right in the body. You can see sensations coming and going. You can see pain shifting, tensions moving, energy flowing. We can really learn this enormous area. Enormous because it's so liberating because when we believe something is solid and it's a problem, it's really a problem because now we're stuck with this thing. Actually, we aren't stuck with it and it isn't really a problem. But that's just the mind believing that. When you can see something that's difficult, and you can see the mind making it a problem because it's unpleasant. You can see it's unpleasant, the Vedana. You can see the mind resisting, worrying. Okay, so here's unpleasant Vedana, here's a worrying mind, or here's a lot of children running out there, worries happening. You can see the whole thing. And you watch it and you see it change. The children don't get so busy, they don't rush out with so many worries. You don't get caught in that whole problem which you could be in that state for hours in your normal life. You can see it breaks the whole thing before it gets so entrenched. The power of being able to see change. That's another whole talk. I won't go any more into that. The releasing power of a And the third, in the refrain of how to pay attention to these four areas in your experience, foundations of mindfulness, is um, to notice, which I already have mentioned, but it's repeated here, without clinging, just notice, period. Make mindfulness be clearly mindful, and it is allowed to see whatever it is it's seeing, but not get caught in wishing it were some way or getting into commentary about it. The simple, quiet, pure, mirror-like seeing and knowing of mindfulness. Underlined again in the refrain. So we don't just notice these areas, and it's not a small just because those are there's a lot there to notice, but we notice quietly, purely, Deeply. In fact, if we keep practicing, which is why this whole sutta says this practice is what leads to liberation, because we can get more and more and more deeply to understand all of these areas. Because mindfulness deepens. Mindfulness, as we practice it, becomes more and more continuous. And when it's continuous, it isn't just staying, it's deepening. When you stay with an experience because your attention is steady and your mind is stable and you're receiving the senses, whatever it is that's happening, and you stay with that, you get to see more, of course. It gets to be richer, and more and more is understood. So two little tiny things to end with as we do this, continuing mindfulness as it deepens, there's two little pieces to add they're kind of supporting players for deepening mindfulness for steadying mindfulness one is is this I just want to say this to be able to steady our attention we have to calm it down it's jumpy and very busy and very good at doing many things very superficially very quickly it's not very good at doing a few things deeply and profoundly we train this In meditation, we train calming, concentrating. This settling down and, and sustaining of our attention needs to be done very, very gently. If you try too hard to stabilize your mind, especially near the beginning of a retreat where we want to really get here and make the most of it and we're sort of all, you know, applying our enthusiasm and our virya. Virya is energy. How do we actually do this? It has to be sustainable. And to be sustainable, it has to be ongoing with a very light touch. If you do something for a long time that's too much, you'll just get tired. That's not sustainable. But completely sustainable means all the time. All the time. And to do something all the time, it has to be done so lightly, so softly, but all the time. So that's virya, your energy. Watch the, watch your energy. Gently, gently, gently. Keep it going. It's a great skill. It's a, a refined skill. Like anything when we learn a skill, we do it with great enthusiasm, way too much, and then we quit. You know, we do it again. and again the... Gym memberships, they say, is the, the best way to make money is to open a gym and you'll get all these memberships and then no one will show up after the first, you know, three weeks or whatever. We overdo that part. It's not that. Very, very lightly. That's one thing. And the other is meta. You do it gently because you really, it's a sacred thing. It has to be held with great, great respect because we're our own best friend here. We're our world's own best friend. We do all that we do. We care about all this. We apply ourselves because of the heart. We love the truth. We love friendship. We love honesty. We want to be free of everything that stands in their way. We do it because we love these things. Not because it's a good idea or because we're going to prove something or because we're a good yogi or because someone will like us more or any of those wrong reasons because we need to be in touch with how deeply we care for this so gently ongoingly with great heart Satipatthana thank you for listening hope these are helpful encouraging words we'll sit quietly for just a few minutes a couple of minutes Small announcement here. Nine o'clock, which is in... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.